Welcome to the November 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. Uh, as always, you'll find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com or at the blog, which you can link through that main site, or you can go straight to ordinarymeans.blogspot.com thanks to the uh, tremendous uh, offering of Google giving us that uh, those airway those uh, internet broadband space internet stuff to use um, out there. Well, we want to thank you for listening and thank you for joining us for this podcast uh, today. I am, as always, Sean Nolan, and sitting across from me, as always, is Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hi, Matt. Uh, Matt is drinking Mountain Dew. Semi-conscious. I am drinking uh, a particularly fabulous espresso ah, made by my wife. I'm jealous. So I'm just going to take a sip there and get a little caffeine going in our system. Matt, you might want to do the same as it is getting later in the afternoon and a, a pastor's, a podcaster's job is never done. True enough. So we're sitting here and what we'd like to talk about, uh, because you're, you're not here right now. So Matt and I get to pick whatever we want to talk about. But please do tell us if there's things you'd like us to talk about. Absolutely. That's what the blog is there for. We want to see your comments. We'd love you to ask your questions and we love to get together and just answer your questions because then we don't have to come up with something to talk about on the podcast. Uh, so despite that, um, what we want to talk about today is, uh, Matt and I have been having this little conversation that was sparked by another conversation. Uh, that Matt had had, and as well sparked by some uh, sermons that I've been listening to, and that is a conversation about preaching. Now, as we've said before, uh, preaching falls under uh, that that purview of the ordinary means of grace: uh, prayer, preaching, sacraments. Those things all go together as the primary means of grace, the primary ways that God uh, sanctifies us, the primary ways that God calls us to faith. And what we want to talk about in terms of preaching uh, today is this idea that preaching uh, really belongs in the hands of everybody, but it also belongs in, in the hands of one, namely the preacher. And that creates sort of a di- uh, dichotomy that for some people it's a, it's a little tricky to get around. And, and as you come to the scripture, uh, you may be wondering, well, is the preacher called to preach? Uh, or am I called to preach? And if we're both called to preach, what's the difference? And why am I not a preacher? Or why is is there a, a preacher set apart to do the preaching? Uh, what we would call these is the uh, the general call of preaching. That is the call of everyone uh, who is a Christian to preach the gospel versus the special calling of the preacher, the pastor, uh, to preach. And so maybe the first question we, that we need to ask is we're talking about this, Matt, is um, where do we find these in Scripture? Where do we find the idea of a, of a general calling to preach, and where do we call, or where do we find the idea of a specific calling to preach? Yeah, I think that the easiest place to find it, the specific calling is, because we live, I uh, will lay a little background here, because we live in the New Covenant era, and our Westminster Confession, that as PCA pastor Sean and I have both signed on to, that we subscribe to. Uh, talks about the fact that it, that under the new covenant, 
post the resurrection of Christ, one of the fruits of the resurrection of Christ is a fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit than believers in the Old Covenant experienced. Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 31, exactly. And we know that uh, believers in the Old Covenant were saved by grace by through faith in the Messiah to come, and we're saved by grace through faith in the Messiah who has come. Uh, Romans 4 makes clear that we're saved the same way. But we have the benefit of a fuller uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit than Old Covenant believers had. And one of the aspects of that fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You know, that that's really an issue in itself, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe we, could, maybe we need to cover that because that's really... How the ordinary means take their effect is by the working of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that is, it, it's, it is different. It is, and we might, we might. Jack Kinnear did a, um, who's been on this podcast before. He's a friend of the, of uh, of our podcast. He's a fellow pastor in the PCA in our Presbytery, and he actually did a summer series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures. And so maybe we'll we'll have him on, and he can revisit some of that for yeah, us. That'd be a great idea. In, in Acts one eight. Um, this is uh, before Jesus is taken up into heaven. He says this, but you will, this is Jesus speaking in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you, meaning the gathered disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And like the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that precedes this, we believe that this is not just a promise to uh, the apostles, the first generation apostles, but it's for all those uh, who would follow them. Following the prayer of, of Jesus in John 17, that he prayed not just for them who were the first generation, but also for us who would believe based on their testimony. And so we have in Acts 1-8, um, a promise here from Jesus that every New Covenant believer post-Pentecost as a fruit of the resurrection has this fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of that fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit is power to witness. And that's not a power to witness that is for naught. If we go over to Acts chapter 8, Sean and I heard a tremendous sermon um, by uh, another PCA pastor, Brian Hebig, at a conference that we went to uh, in April this year, uh, talking on this very specific um, chapter 8 of Acts, where uh, the early disciples seemed to have a hard time getting out of Jerusalem. And so Jesus made sure by bringing a persecution that they got out. And we read in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, as God um, comes to scatter them, uh, on that day, this is uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered, now remember what we just read, Everyone but the apostles was were scattered. So those who were scattered were not apostles. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, I typically call this small p preaching. Uh, because this is a, a, a confirmation that there is a, uh, a calling that goes to every believer, the general office of believer, to proclaim the gospel, and in this sense, to preach the word of Christ. Uh, and so there is a general call upon every believer 
to be witnesses for Christ in preaching, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Do you have something there from Spurgeon you want to read, Sean? Yeah, yeah I, was, uh, I was looking at the, this this week. This is uh, from Spurgeon's uh, Lectures to My Students, which is just a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, particularly if you're thinking about going into the ministry um, or if you are in the ministry and you've never read this, you need to read this book. Uh, but he has a section in here, a chapter in here called The Call to the Ministry, in which he talks about uh, specifically the pastoral call, or what we would call the, the special call, as opposed to the general call. But he starts out this way. He says, any Christian has a right to disseminate the gospel who has the ability to do so. And more, he not only has the right, but it's his duty so to do as long as he lives. It's, it's funny here, he gives a Bible reference, and uh, Matt and I were talking about this before the podcast, because sometimes the, these guys from uh, yesteryear will make references and you'll say, where on earth did, did that verse come from as, as a reference for this? He references then to this idea that we all have a calling upon our heart. He references it to Revelation twenty two seventeen. Okay, this is four verses before the end of the Bible. And I want to read you what it says there. It says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Uh, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Now, at first glance, you're going, What in the world, Charles, are you talking about? Uh, but if you think about it, is that not a summary of... Uh, the kingdom of God. Hmm. It's God calling his bride, the spirit uh, calling his bride. The bride has come. Let everyone who hears, let them come. If you, if you have ears to hear, come. And this is, and let the one who hears say, come. That there's a sense in which, yes, uh, the great commission is spoken to th- to the apostles. But it wasn't spoken to the apostles as if the apostles were were the end. Right. The apostles were just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and as every uh, you, you would you would agree with me if I were to tell you that every pastor needs to be godly and above reproach. Right. But is it not also true that every Christian needs to be godly and above reproach? Absolutely. So a pastor who is called to preach is is an example. I mean, in a sense, that's where we uh, we in, just in the congregation learn. To preach is by hearing our pastor preach. And every week as he gives us the gospel, we have more fuel, as it were. We have more understanding. We have more, uh, our faith is strengthened so that we might go out and say those same things to those that we come in contact with. Um, Spurgeon goes on to say, let's see if I can find my way back to that chapter now. Uh, he goes he goes on to talk about this, uh, this calling, this general calling. He says, the propagation of the gospel is left not to a few, but to all the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the measure of grace entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit, each man is bound to minister in his day and in his generation, both to the church and among unbelievers. Indeed, this question goes beyond uh, men, and it even includes the whole of the other sex, whether believers are male or female. They are all bound, when enabled by divine grace, to exert themselves. <clears throat> excuse me, 
to exert themselves to the utmost to extend the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, after making that point, making it absolutely clear that we all have the calling to preach, our service, however, need not take, um, I'm sorry, uh, after, after making that whole statement, he goes on uh, to address the specifics of the man who is called to preach, and he goes on to show in that chapter the, uh, the specific verses that relate to the one uh, who has the title of overseer or bishop or pastor. Right, right. And we know that um, there, there is this general office, but when we read through the New Testament, we also see that in the New Testament, there, are, there is also, um, besides this general office of believer, where, where everyone is to go out and, and to witness and to preach the gospel in that sense, there are also those whom God has set aside especially for the work of preaching in the church. Um, and I'll just highlight uh, a few for you. Uh, in Ephesians 4, we find a, a very clear affirmation in terms of this gifting for office. Um, this is Ephesians 4.11. It was he, meaning Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers, or pastors and teachers, depending on how you translate it, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until so we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. When we merge that giftedness with what we find else, elsewhere in the scriptures, what we find out is that these pastor teachers are um, some of the elders. So if we go over to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Okay, So there's a whole lot there in terms of the plurality of eldership and that they're the ones who want to direct the church and that they're worthy of honor. There's, there's many implicit things in there as well. But then... Um, uh, Paul goes on in addressing uh, Timothy uh, in these words, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And so in the PCA, uh, our denomination, we, we have this uh, one office of elder that is, uh, if you will, has two different constituencies. We have uh, ruling elders and teaching elders. That's the formal names for the offices in the PCA. And the reason that we do that is really self-consciously trying to follow 1 Timothy 5, 17, um, that there are elders of a church who direct the affairs, who govern the ship, if you will. Those are the kinds of words that are used. But some of those elders are especially set aside by their giftedness to preaching and teaching. And so... The genesis of this podcast, in some sense, is uh, a friend of mine were having a dialogue about whether something unique happens in a worship service when a pastor preaches. And he had been trying to teach on the ordinary means of grace in, in a, uh, a Sunday school class, and he had gotten some feedback from folks who were very concerned um, that we not lose what Sean and I have already affirmed which is that there is a general office of believer that involves the preaching of the gospel. Yeah, because any time that you step in and you say, uh, this man has something special. Right. Uh, or you say, this man is preaching, what you're doing isn't is precisely preaching. Uh, you've got to ask, uh, you're going to ask yourself, um, 
whether or not that that tension should be there. And I, I think maybe some some of the people listening to the podcast right now, they're not seeing the tension yet. Right. They're they're saying, well, okay, there's a general call to preach, and there is a specific call to preach that goes just to the pastor. You know, I'm I'm not a pastor, so I don't have that. I just have the small p preaching. The pastor gets the big p. Um, why why then is there a tension? And I, I think this is one of those issues that when you talk about it, it sounds so simple. Right. And it really is. It is that simple. We don't want to confuse anybody. We don't want to make this more complex than it is. It's simply the fact that we all have the privilege of evangelizing, but the preacher specifically has a specific calling by Christ to, to preach and to evangelize. Yeah, I think it's, uh, to use some of the words of, of an old pastor, of Sean and I, um, this is not a situation where we have two things at war. Um, this is a situation where we need to grab one thing in one arm and one thing in the other arm and say these are both good. And embrace them both wholly. And embrace them both wholly. Um, here's the reason there's there's a little bit of conflict. There there were two general principles that flowed out of the Reformation uh, that are sometimes set against each other, which we're saying should be embraced by both. One of the conflicts in the in the Reformation was that priests in the, the institutional church at that time were the – uh, were the servants of God, and the people were at kept at a far distance from them. And they, the the as a priest, um, you had a special standing with God, and it was a more noble work than others. And one of the fruits of the Reformation was to say, no, everybody is equally indwelt and gifted by the Holy Spirit. The blacksmith who faithfully does his work, 1 Corinthians 10.31, if he does it all to the glory of God, then his work is just as significant in the sight of God than the pastor. And so there was a reclaiming of uh, the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, and that everybody's significant in the labor that they do, and they can equally honor God. There's not a pecking order. And so that's one principle that flows out of the Reformation. An- another aspect of that we really need to point out as well is that uh, is the idea that we don't need mediators. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly we need the mediator Christ. But not any other human mediators. But we don't need it, human mediators, and that was that was the focus. And I think if we see that as the focus of that, that then the second one you're about to talk about uh, makes sense. Right, right. And so um, so the one principle flowing out of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. And there are certain churches that have gone um, so far with that as to flatten things out and say there actually should not, there ought not be official pastor teachers. And so there are some traditions within um, Christianity that say there should not be a single called man who is a pastor teacher of a congregation. That's a minority viewpoint, but it's there, and I would consider that, my own opinion, uh, an overemphasis of the priesthood of all believers. It's a flattening, and I think at times it can fail to recognize uh, that some ought to be set apart, especially for preaching and teaching worthy of double honor. Oh yeah, well the scripture again and again talks about these offices. You right. have uh you have the offices of um of uh, pastor and of deacon, of elder and of deacon there in in 1 Timothy, 2 right. Timothy, Titus. Those are obviously letters written to men who are called to these offices. Right. And so I I don't think there's generally I don't think there's going to be an argument. Not too much, I don't think. That we have that. But but, but there there's a fear. Yes. That if we embrace the priesthood of all believers, we'll, we'll lose 
we'll lose the specific calling of the pastor. Exactly. And if we embrace the specific calling of the, the pastor, pastor, we lose right. the priesthood of all believers. So it, here's the other side of the potential tension that's there for some people. Uh, so wanting to rightly embrace the priesthood of all believers can yield that nothing unique happens in a worship service when a man stands up and preaches. And that there's a um, that 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 is viewed uh, by some uh, as a tension that if if a, if when a man stands up on Sunday morning something unique happens that's perceived as denigrating what the believer does in his in his office as believer when he goes out and proclaims during the week. So, for example, in Romans ten. Um, there are many people, and I, I would fall into this, who, the way that they would interpret Romans 10 is to say that when somebody, when a gifted teacher gets up to preach one who has been sent, then Christ speaks. And so there is something unique happening uh, in a worship service. Um, and and as I was discussing this with a friend a few weeks ago, um, it struck me that uh, although that's a, a good and I think a solid exegetical point, um, I think that there's also a general principle in terms of framework to think about that we can embrace both uh, the uniqueness and an expectation that the Holy Spirit would work with power when an individual believer witnesses, based on the promise of Acts eight, and to affirm with the other hand – that when a gifted man stands up and preaches on Sunday, that something unique happens, that Christ speaks there. So let me see if I can lay out that framework for you, um, just in, in terms of what that would look like. What we believe happens on Sunday morning when a gifted man stands up to preach is this. The Holy Spirit-inspired Bible is opened by a Holy Spirit-gifted man filled by the Holy Spirit in a room that's by and large occupied by people who are indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit. And those people have gathered by the command of God, and they have asked, this is maybe as you've thought about your former worship, you wonder why is that opening prayer there that might go by the name of invocation? What What is, what is that doing there in a service? Well, if you listen to that prayer, and it's done well, you might hear something like, uh, rend the heavens, Lord, and come down. And in that invocation, when the pastor prays that, what we're asking is that Jesus' promise to be there where his disciples gather is being prayed for and being asked that the Spirit of God would fall upon that place and that an Isaiah 6 kind of experience would happen for the people that are gathered. That a First Corinthians fourteen. Now, by that, by an Isaiah six experience, we're not saying that you will have that everybody will have a vision. Exactly. No, no. But but you're saying that we would meet with God. Yeah, yeah. R.C. Sproul has become very famous, and I think it's right as he said. You, you know, if you don't, if you can't get excited about coming into church, you've obviously missed the point because you can't find anywhere in the scriptures where people meet with God and walk away blase. But can I get the same thing in my in my personal quiet time at home? Uh, in part, you can. Indeed, it's the word that's the means of grace. But what are we expecting when we gather in worship? When are, are we asking, Holy Spirit, fall on me, transform me, use this word you've inspired, use this man you've gifted to make me different than I was when I walked in? I, I think it's I think it's helpful if we 
if we step back when we ask this question and we say, what is, because the question tends to, re, the question tends to revolve around what can I get out of the service? Yes. What can I get out of the preaching or what can I get out of my quiet time? And so uh, those who say, you know, I'm, I'm very fearful that you're elevating the preacher by saying that something special is happening there on Sunday morning mm-hmm. that isn't happening the rest of the week. Uh, they fear that you're taking something from them. Right. Well, now think about that. That is, at its base, selfishness. Hmm. You you want something, you want it to be mine. It's sort of that the yeah. me generation thing, right? So it helps us, I think, if we take a step back and you say, okay, what is the heart of God on this? What does God want? Hmm. And then you look at the scriptures and you see that God has established teachers and preachers. We're not... We're not, and I tell my own congregation this, pastors are not different than the congregation. They're not aliens. <laughs> Thankfully. Right? Thankfully, yes. We don't have antenna that come out of our heads. We're not, we're not weird. Okay? What we are is we have a different gifting. We're each gifted in the congregation. Everybody in the congregation has gifts. But some of us have the gift of preaching and teaching. Right. Okay? So you ask yourself, okay, why has God done this? What's he after? What's, what's he going for? What's he for? after? And, and the answer is, well, because it's very, very important to him that we understand his word. Mm. And it's very, very important to him, uh, even though, even Jeremiah 31, that we will all know the word, it'll be written on our hearts. It, yet God has designated these people with these giftings to do that teaching in the church. God would not have done that. If we didn't need that. Right. And so the heart of God is that we know him. And the heart of God is that we not be uh, separate from him. And that we understand, I think this is important, particularly in American culture, that we understand his authority in our lives. Hmm. And so he sets up, just as God sets up governments. Right. God also sets up elders in authority over the churches as representatives, or we would say under shepherds. Of him. Right. It's not that pastors have supreme power. It's that we have been given a calling to serve as under shepherds, to do what God said to be his, his mouthpiece, as it were, in the church. This is, and this is the, um, this is the role today. In the beginning of Acts, you've got, uh, prophets speaking. By the end of Acts, you've got elders being established right. and teaching and the word of God going forth. So we believe that that is the calling of the church today, is to proclaim the Word of God. That word proclaim is the same word uh, most often in the New Testament. That word proclaim is the same word as preach. Um, It's caruso in the the Greek. And that is the calling both in uh, Acts 8.4, where it says those who are after Stephen's death that you read earlier, Matt, Mm -hmm. those who are scattered went about preaching. Then the very next verse says, and Philip, who was one of the specific called individuals who's, who'd had hands laid on him by the apostles, and then Philip's, Philip preached the word to Samaria. So right there in the space of two verses, uh, Acts 8, 4, and 5, you've got everybody preaching, and you've got one person specifically called preaching. And so that it's not at all, there is no tension between the priesthood of believers 
and that specific calling of, of the pastor to preach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holy Spirit is just as much present in both, but God has chosen to use Sunday morning and and the preaching of his word through men he has called to be the way that faith is built on us. I, that, that's Romans 10. Um, right. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Exactly. Exactly. Where this started uh, with my friend wasn't a discussion of Romans 10. It's interesting you bring that up because as we look at that in detail, there's this chain that Paul sets up um, where he's saying, you know, how are people to come to faith if they don't hear? Because it's by hearing that you believe and are justified with mouth, mouth you confess and are saved. But how can they preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Well, just before that, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one, now the NIV translates this, of whom they have not heard? There's good reasons to translate that, whom they've not heard. And that that who people are hearing and preaching is Christ. Hmm. And, uh, well, I think that's a legitimate point here. I guess what I've been trying to draw is to hit this more to the end instead of the beginning is, what what would we be expecting in preaching? Given everything else we've said, why God's put it there, what is it that he wants to do, who is it that he's called, what kind of posture does he give us in his word, what would we be expecting other than when we gather that the Holy Spirit of Christ would speak? We would expect nothing different, even if we only had the rest of the scriptures. And so we shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be that this, that we've got a resistance to this idea that Christ speaks in the preaching, in the service, uh, as long as in that, when we admit that, we don't say that there is not also something very vital and very important going on um, when an individual believer proclaims the gospel. We think both are vital, and that they're not enemies, but they're friends. They're both the working, the outworking of that fuller ministry of the Holy Spirit that we've already talked about. You know, Matt, that makes me think. Uh, so often, uh, we 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 say that the um, just making this distinction between you know the general calling and that special calling of the pastor. Um, I think most. Christians, probably all three of our listeners, would agree with us when when I when we say that it's the calling of all Christians to evangelize, mm-hmm. which is really in the New Testament uh, the term that's used for evangelism is preaching. Right. Uh, there's not a there's not a harsh distinction between the two because what are we preaching? We're preaching Christ and Him crucified. Right. There is no uh, there is no other kind of preaching. When we preach, we preach the gospel. Right. Uh, we could be preaching from the the book of Deuteronomy. We could be preaching from the book from Song of Songs. We could be preaching from Malachi. We could be preaching from Revelation. But we're to we're to preach all of those books as if they are the inspired word of God. And all of them, I, I heard Mark Dever use this term. All of them have as their trajectory Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So. The gospel is what we're proclaiming. Just an interesting thing in all of this is that we tend to say, okay, we're all called to preach, we're all called to evangelize, uh, but the pastor more so. 
And, you know, and when we tithe, what are we doing? But we're paying the pastor to, to preach and we're paying the pastor to evangelize the lost. Can be viewed as a a pushing off of my responsibility. Exactly, it's it's right. general. I don't think I don't think our three listeners would agree with that idea. But no, there are people that are genuinely concerned though that if we affirm that something unique happens in preaching, then the the net effect of that is he's the only guy who can do it. Exactly, which is a distinct- and the only guy who's responsible to do it. Yes, which is a distinction that the that was what. The reformers were getting at with the priesthood of non uh, priesthood of all believers, priesthood of non believers. I haven't <laughs> heard of that one. No, but in the priesthood of all believers, they're saying we're, we're, this clergy laity distinction needs to go. Right. You, but they weren't saying the role of elder needs to go. Correct. They, but that you need to see the elder as a called one from within the church. You remember, it's the people of God who choose their elders. Right. Now, that makes me that makes me think though. Uh, the pastor really is the guy who has less time to evangelize than anybody else. Usually, there's a there's a sense in which when you're called to pastor, uh, <laughs> you're called to give up talking to non Christians. I mean, I mean, really, since I've been a pastor, yeah, I had a lot more opportunity to talk to non believers before I became a pastor than since I have. And now that I'm a pastor, if I even mention that I'm a pastor, you know, zip, there goes the conversation. You know, if, I, if I'm talking to a non-believer, I'm on a plane or I'm in a restaurant or something. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. You know, it's the, everything shuts off. Right. Whereas if I said, you know, hey, I, I'm a... Um, You're a teacher of spirituality, Sean. Yeah, that, that'll get a lot of uh, interesting comments, I'm sure. Um, all the all the, the Buddhist monks would hang out with me if I started saying that. But I'm thinking, you know, if I'm I, I work at a video store, I used to work at a video store. I had some great, great conversations with people, uh, talking about spirituality, talking about redemption, at a video store. And I don't have those conversations now because I'm stuck with Christians all the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. So there's there's a very real sense in which. There's more of a calling on the general public to evangelize than there is upon the pastor, because the pastor is really there to, to train and to build up and, and to lead the Christian in their calling to preach the gospel small p. And I think that's really where the two meet, the the specific calling, the special calling of the pastor and the general calling of all, they, they meet there because it's it's the role of of father and son, of you know, of mentor and student. If the pastor is there to teach you, what are we to do but to learn from the pastor? If the pastor evangelizes the congregation by preaching the gospel, uh, presuming that there are believers and non-believers there present in the congregation, preacher preaches the gospel, I hear it, and I go preach the gospel. And so it's not as if there's a distinction or a dichotomy or a tension between, rather the one naturally flows into the other. I think, too, that it, it, it certainly I have found as a pastor that if I'm going to meet unbelievers, those who are unchurched, those who don't yet know Christ, it takes a lot more intentionality. Um, it mm. takes a lot more work. Um, I know that, that one of the things that um, this has been a priority at our church is about half the size of Sean's or less than that. And it's uh, basically been We a, have about eight 
thousand in attendance right now. <laughs> uh, we're looking to get a new a new building because our our little building only holds 130. We're having a hard time fitting these 8,000 people in it. Um, but it, one of the things that my church, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I, I um, came into and it was a new church, but they thought that they were settled and the church had been planted. And we discovered along the way that it actually had had was not finished being planted yet and was sort of a church planting work. Um, and I didn't realize that coming in. I, I, I uh, If I had realized that, I may not well have come, um, but obviously God had other plans and I've, I've learned quite a lot there. And so it's been uh, a great pleasure for that reason that uh, God knew what he was doing, as I mentioned before. But one of the things that it has pushed my wife and I to do is to realize uh, that even as a pastor's family, that there's a great, um, a great privilege to sacrificially spend our time with nonbelievers. And it is a sacrifice. Um, you were reading a book recently about that, weren't you? Um, something about eating? Well, yeah. I mean, I recently read a book called Never Eat Alone, which is a great book. I, I would recommend it. It's not a Christian book uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the general philosophy of the of the, the book was helpful um, in uh, basically the, the, the gentleman – talks about the fact that the way the shape of our lives ought to be oriented towards people and towards blessing other people. And for that reason, it was, it was uh, an encouragement to me to intentionally spend time with people um, that don't know Christ, even as a pastor, sacrificially spending my time that way. Uh, it's not easy, um, but having the privilege of uh, we've recently had um, uh, some folks begin to attend the church that we've spent a lot of time with offline. And um, it, I think that sometimes we divide a little bit too much between the role that we typically think of as a church planter and we typically think of as a pastor. Uh, and that one of my friends, actually, I just had lunch with today, early on in my pastor had uh, said to him that, uh, you know, I really felt like I was going into what was much more church planting and that just wasn't me. And But I was thinking that it needed to become me because it's what the church needed. And he just sort of quietly under his breath said, I think that's what most pastors need to be is to think more as though they were church planters. So I think that there is a sense, Matt, uh, the ordinary means we really do believe there's not a a difference between a church being planted and a quote unquote real church, you know, or or a church that is absolutely, we call it particularized, a particular church. There really is no difference in what happens there. They worship the same way. Exactly. But the mentality frequently. The mentality is different. In a church plant, you need a congregation who's intentionally reaching out, as well as a pastor who has specific gifts of of evangelism in in large measure in a way that uh, a particularized church ideally – and this is – it's often the case that particular churches, uh, as you were saying, your friend was saying that the – that most pastors need to think more like church planters right. is so often particular churches plateau and they just become comfortable with they the lose status an, quo. They lose an outward focus. Yeah. So, um, I mean, so the particular churches need an outward focus. Church plants need an outward focus. Uh, so I, I, I think what you've gone through in these past five, six years here has been uh, an opportunity I've learned from watching you. Oh, <laughs> and, an uh, and I think, me. and I know you, I mean, you and I know each other. You've, I think you've grown from it because you've, uh, oh, yeah. you've seen, you know, f- first, first pastorates are that way. Right. You know, by necessity. You, you learn, you learn, we learn by our mistakes. But I think we're, that we're I, still I think we're, making them too. We're still making them and <laughs> learning them too. 
But I think to the to the general topic we've been thinking about, this may seem like a digression, but I'm trying to bring it back, which is to say, I think that hey, the this pastor, is our podcast. We can talk about yeah, anything, anything we want. want. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the listeners are hoping that we'll get back to the point. Um, I think that the pastor can model both. He can model the small p preaching and show by his own lifestyle that he believes that that's real and vital. And he can fulfill his specific calling because of his giftedness, because it's the way that God's appointed, to believe and act as though what happens on Sunday is unique and used by God distinctly in the church because it's what he set up for and I think that many times the reasons that people in our churches don't do the small p preaching uh, is because they don't see it modeled. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to me recently. Um, I don't know if Sean's got a copy of our um, of our book gonna, of church you order. Gonna, you're going to illustrate that because I, I think that's a great. Yeah, point. yeah. If you have a book of church order right here from the PCA somewhere, a blue book, um, the I've got one of my Palm Pilot. But um, that recently my elders and I were looking um, – I, I participated in May, I think, in the ordination of a man. And um, and it was a real privilege. He was a great guy and a friend and I participated in his, uh, in his ordination. And in doing it, it was right around the fifth anniversary of my ordination. And, um, and I wanted to uh, – in, in having his ordination, having him taking his vows – of what he was committing himself to do in his new office as an assistant pastor. And it being near the five-year anniversary of my ordination, uh, I wanted to uh, really meditate on those vows that I had taken. And so uh, I went back with my elders, and because it had been such a useful thing for me to do, I I brought those vows and I brought the description of our office um, from our Book of Church Order um, to to a session meeting, to an elders meeting. And I can't find my book of church order right now. But one of the things that was very interesting that I'd completely forgotten about the description for elders in our book of church order is that they set an example for the congregation in their zeal for the evangelization of the lost. And it's right there in the job description. How'd I miss that? Right in the job description. And, um, it just really struck me how for quite a few of the years that I've been a pastor, probably only the last two or three months would I say that I have set a worthy example of my zeal for the evangelization of the lost by my prayerfulness and by the use of my time. And so I want to wholeheartedly, I don't want to be heard wrong on this podcast. I don't want to get hate mail. Uh, I want us to affirm the both, that I, as a believer, Matt Bowling, should be small p preaching the gospel, just like any other believer. But it is also the case that I, as a gifted pastor teacher by God, not by my initiation, but by his initiation, that I also believe and affirm humbly that when I stand up on Sunday morning and I have prayed and I have asked the Holy Spirit to fall upon me in this congregation, that Christ there speaks. And God wants the reaction to be of what happened in 1 Corinthians 14, that an unbeliever is there and they say, God is among you because of the word being proclaimed. Um, and, and that ought to happen too. I was just in a home last Thursday and I was late. I got there late. It's a man I've been visiting with for uh, about a year and a half. 
he's an unbeliever, but I think he's he's uh, he's close to becoming a believer. And uh, I got there late. I was feeling stressed. I wanted to get home. I wanted to see my kids. We were talking, and there was a specific point that he said, "Could you explain that for me?" And and he he asked me to proclaim the gospel to him. And God touched down in that moment, and I have no doubt about it. And so what I, my passion is that we believe in, we pray as though on Sunday that we expect God to touch down and that we pray no less passionately than on Tuesday afternoon at coffee break, when I'm at work with somebody that I've prayed that God would touch down and believe that in both of them, God wants to work in and through me. Just if you've got a, uh, a Bible software program, or if you have a, um, concordance, just look up the use of the terms preach or preaching or proclaim, proclaiming, and literally hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's the center of what's happening. And every single time, it's, as we said before, this proclamation, this preaching of the gospel. You made a point just a minute ago, Matt, that I, I want to come back to, is that what happens on Sunday flows out mm-hmm. into into the week. And I noticed that in a, in a particularly interesting way when I was preaching on Acts chapter 13. Uh, this is the church in Antioch. And it, it's funny, you we've read, um, read or mentioned uh, Acts chapter 8 a couple times now where the people were scattered and the people who were scattered went about preaching. Well, what happens then is at that point in, in 8.4, it sort of opens up a parenthesis in the, in the beginning of Acts, and it goes all the way uh, to chapter 11, verse 18, and in that parenthesis, what we get is two things. We get the conversion of Saul and the conversion of Cornelius mm-hmm. within between uh, Acts 8.4 and Acts 11.18, you have this uh, almost parenthesis where you get the conversion of Saul, conversion of Cornelius, and it's as if to say, here's what God is setting us up for. He's going to convert Jews and Gentiles. Right. Then, in Acts 11.19, it picks up where 8.4 left off. I 8, see that. 4 yeah. leaves us with they were scattered. And in 11.19 we read, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, here it is, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, you know what happens? A church gets started. And Jerusalem sends Barnabas up to Antioch, and Barnabas can't handle the load, so he goes over to Tarsus and he gets Saul, and he brings Saul back with him. And at this point, and I think we forget this, it's been 10 years since Stephen was killed. Hmm. That's, God is not working quickly, but he's working. Right. And so now Saul and Barnabas are preaching. At the beginning of Acts 13, there's a whole group of prophets and teachers there in the church at Antioch, and you get the list there in chapter 13. And then in chapter 13, verse 2, the church was there ministering to the Lord and fasting. The, fasting. the word ministering to, or some of some translations have serving, is our, the word we get liturgy from. One of the words for worshiping, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. worship. 
while they were worshiping, the Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and, and Saul. Hmm. When we gather together to worship, which includes the preaching of the word, that is where God sends us out. Hmm. As we go out, what are we doing? We're preaching. So we come together to worship, preach the gospel. We go out to do what? Preach to the gospel. preach the gospel. And when you go out and you preach the gospel, what happens? You get new worshipers. Mm-hmm. And those new worshipers worship God. And what does God do with those new worshipers? He sends people out. Right. I think that the church, uh, particularly Reformed churches, and I, I'm going to point out a weakness of the PCA here, is we say we're evangelical, but I'm not sure. I think we're so focused on worship Mm-hmm. That we've we've lost that the whole point of worshiping together is that we might glorify God and be equipped to evangelize, and the whole point of evangelism is so that we might call in worshipers. Right? There's not a there's not a tension there that we either need to worship or we need to evangelize. You know, we tend it was to a happy do that. Union, hopefully, oh, it was a very happy union. Yeah, because. This is what it's about. It's about building the kingdom of God, which is all the parables of Jesus are about building the kingdom of God. I think that's what my friend was going for when he was saying that, you know, every pastor would probably do well to think a little bit more like a church planter is that we can frequently, uh, let's just be honest, we can frequently get church to really be about me. Uh, How many of us as pastors have had people come and go because, well, we, you know, we, Pastor, we, we really need to have a church where, you know, there's a youth group for our kids. I'm not against youth group for kids or youth ministry to kids. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, when church, when the focus of church gets to be what I get, not what I give, we're beginning to miss it. And so frequently, uh, well, that's what our lives look like. It's what can I get instead of what can I give. And the point, I think, of the scriptures is to say, we're here to give. We're here to be poured out. We're here to be sacrificial. We're here to orient our lives around unbelievers. Okay, you're making me uncomfortable. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Meant to do that. Um, well, you know, it's, it's true, though, isn't it? It's a church that isn't evangelizing is not a true church. True. It's easy to fake worship. Because mm-hmm. the Pharisees, the Pharisees did a great oh, job experts. Oh, of yeah. faking worship, mm-hmm. you know. And think about it in our context: you can come in, you can, um, you can close your eyes when everybody prays, with your hands folded and your head and your, and your head bowed, and nobody around you knows that you're not thinking about the prayer; you're daydreaming. You're thinking about the Steelers, exactly. And you could, um, well, it, it, for the people living in Pittsburgh, they're thinking about the Steelers. If you're right. if you're living in San Diego, you're thinking about the Chargers. But you're you can you can sing the songs and never think about the words you're saying. Right. You can maintain eye contact with the with the pastor the whole time he's preaching, and he will never have a clue that you that he's not at all listening. So it's easy to fake worship, but you know what? It's almost impossible to fake evangelism. Uh huh. I, I was trying to think of a way. How would you fake it? I guess if you had a model, if you had like a method, you know, four four step method or something, you could right. you could fake evangelism. But it's very very difficult because you're not going to do that if you don't want to. Right. You're not right. going to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ if you don't want to. Right. 
Right. But I think that even our way that we think about it, and, and this is why us passionate that we do this podcast today, is that as we affirm the both, and I think that it's easy for us in Reformed churches to affirm the uniqueness of preaching. So in, the, in some ways, we're, um, we're speaking to the choir this week, but we want to challenge the choir too. We want to affirm the uniqueness of preaching in the worship service on Sunday and the uniqueness of the proclamation of the gospel by the believer throughout the week. We want to, we want to affirm the both of those because we think that they're both biblical. Um, I can't think of a better reason to affirm them. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're biblical. I think that where it gets a little bit interesting is that we can get as good reform believers, as homeschoolers, as people passionate about church, we can basically form our lives in a way that we're insulated from unbelievers rather than in contact with them. We can say, well, Jesus, yeah, he was known as a glutton and a wine bibber, but not us. We would never be known for that. What is a wine bibber? <laughs> is, that, is that somebody who um, who like goes around and puts bibs on people drinking wine? <laughs> Using the old King James terms there. Uh, glutton and a drunkard. Because um, we're King James only here. We are. So I think that we can get Actually, very comfortable. Hebrew and Greek only. Hebrew and Greek only. I, I think we can get real comfortable with thinking, ooh, we got the corner on the block. We're reformed without actually having the form of church that we see in the New Testament come about in our churches. And so I think it's easy for us to affirm the one without affirming the other one. Here's, here's the standard way I've, I've started to think about this. When um, outreach, and this was spurred by a, a ruling elder in our Presbyterian came and preached in my church in January of this year, and I should give him credit because Dave Snoke um, is a, is a neat guy, and he came and preached in my church, and it's, it, his just one sermon has given us a lot to think about as a church, which is great when that happens. Oh yeah, sometimes you can you can preach and preach and preach on a subject, but then one guy will come in and he'll hit it in a week, and and the people yep. open their eyes and they listen in a way that they're they're just used to us. As I've synthesized what he said and the reaction that it's had to people is, you know, when you're affirming the both of these, when you come on Sunday and you expect that God is going to visit. And when you think about outreach, church outreach, family outreach, that it's not a program, it's not a committee, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle where I'm expecting God to use me just like I'm expecting him to visit on Sunday. You know, I think that we, because there are so many evangelism models that are out there, and, and I don't want to harp on those because I think they're helpful to mm -hmm. a degree. Yep. But I think... To the degree that they get people comfortable in proclaiming the gospel, it, they're wonderful. Yes. But I think also because they can make us comfortable preaching the gospel, they can be, they can have an adverse effect. I, I've been thinking about this recently. And... I wonder if uh, the models of evangelism are dangerous because they tend to professionalize uh, evangelism. If only if you... Have you been trained, have you Sean? Been, yeah, have you been trained to do this? I would define evangelism this way. My heart is so full of the grace of God hmm. and of Jesus Christ, my Savior that that love of God overflows into the lives of others. That is evangelism. It's simply me 
going out and and my love through my actions, through my words, through through my thoughts is is making an obvious effect. Well, maybe not my thoughts having an obvious effect on other people, except maybe those people who are um, telepathic. Uh, those people can hear my thoughts and obviously they're, and they're having, it's having an effect on them, but all the normal people, they're, they're seeing my actions, they're hearing my words, they're seeing the grace of Christ overflow in my life. That's evangelism. Yep. Now, obviously that, that grace is the gospel. And so the overflow is going to be the proclamation of the gospel. And I, I wonder if maybe the models have taken that away They've made a, a clergy laity distinction, hmm. not between the pastor and the people, but between the trained and the, the evangelists and the people. Right. Because there is an office of evangelist in the yes. scripture, yes. And there are people in your churches who have these gifts, and these are the people who who talk to everybody they meet on the plane. You know, these are the people who are regularly visiting people in, in their homes and visiting non-Christians. They have the gift of evangelism, and by all means, we need to encourage them. But let's not let them, because they're doing that, let's not say, it's not my job. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. That's very well put. Very well put. Well, I think that brings us just about to the close of our hour. I think we've touched on... Uh, a good number of things. This is a this is an issue that, in some circles, there is a great deal of tension here between big big P preaching and small P preaching. Uh, but I think what we've affirmed is that they're both biblical, and we need to press on with both of them. Absolutely, and we need to not let the one degrade the other, or vice versa. Um, but we need to to press on in doing what God has called us to do. And that is profoundly ordinary. Absolutely. Which is the use of the term ordinary means in our title is not that it's not the extraordinary working of God, because it is the extraordinary working of God through individuals, through pastors, as they stand, uh, as it were, in the, as the mouthpiece of God from the pulpit. And as you, if you're not a pastor, as you stand as the mouthpiece of God in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the extraordinary working of God. But he does it through these ordinary things like preaching. Mm. And so, may the Lord bless you as you go forth to do his will, uh, as you go forth and as you proclaim his word, as you proclaim the Savior Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you as you seek him through his ordinary means. Mm.